Making sense of NASA's latest budget proposal, you're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. The Biden administration has asked Congress for $27 million to fund NASA. The 2024 budget request is a 7% increase over the previous year. The proposal includes funding for NASA's human missions like trips to the moon and maintenance of the International Space Station and science missions like a Mars sample return and probe heading to Venus. But the proposal faces an uphill battle. We'll hear from the Planetary Society's Casey Dreyer about its future. Then, a reading program here in Florida aimed at improving reading levels of kindergarten through fifth graders is leveraging the support of a space-focused TikToker. We'll talk about the story of reading and STEM. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. $27.2 billion. That's how much the Biden administration wants Congress to give to NASA. While it's a 7% increase over last year's budget, it's almost unchanged thanks to inflation. And it faces a contentious future in a divided Congress. So what's in the budget? And will it be enough for NASA's ambitious mission plans over the coming years? Well, here to break it down for us is Casey Dreyer. He's the chief of space policy for the Planetary Society. Casey, welcome back to the show. Hey, happy to be here. So let's talk broadly about this most recent budget proposal. Casey, how much is in the budget request from the Biden administration and, and how does this compare to other years? We're talking $27.2 billion total for NASA spread out through its science, exploration, human operations in low Earth orbit, you know, all the things that NASA does, aeronautics, right, the first A in NASA. And that's a 7%-ish increase from the prior year if this proposal goes through. And just in broad context, if you adjust for inflation over time, this is NASA's best budget in terms of buying power since the mid to late 1990s. So this is a, a really nice, chunky budget that we can do a lot with. You bring up a good point. This is a proposal. We'll talk about the process later in the conversation, but let, let's talk about the actual proposal and dig in a little bit here. Um, some of the programs funded by this proposal, um, let's start with human exploration and, and Artemis. Um, what has been budgeted for, for these programs? And um, is it an optimistic future to to sustain um, the Artemis program and, and some of the other human missions with this price tag? Yeah, it does pretty good, actually. Artemis overall exploration sees an overall increase of about half a billion dollars. Again, seven, 6.7%, so you know this kind of inflationary matching increase. But it's not spread evenly. And most of that growth goes to support the human landing system project, right? That Those fixed price contracts with right now SpaceX. And critically, what NASA proposed last year and is very much digging down in, in this proposal to bring on a second competing system in addition to Starship to provide regular landing uh, access to, you know, for crew to the lunar surface. So that would see a 27% increase in order to accommodate a second provider. You also see a modest increase for Gateway, uh, you know, or this orbiting lunar space station. And then we kind of keep roughly flat or, or small declines for Orion and SLS as they shift from their main area of development. You know, they've been developed now, right? We saw them tested last year. They should start to get a little cheaper as they move into production. You know, they're, they're just going to be cranking these out, you know, on the relative <laughs> speed of these, you know, once or once a year. But that'll save a, a bit of money there. So exploration does well. Artemis is, is funded at the, you know, kind of depending on where you call, draw the line around Artemis. It's getting the most money any human lunar program has gotten uh, since Apollo. 
That doesn't mean it's anywhere close to what Apollo was in terms of expenditures, but it's a healthy, junky budget. We're talking about $8 billion exclusively to send humans beyond low Earth orbit. And what I keep thinking about is it's astonishing. When you look at the budget, NASA projects what they call out years, the next five years of what it plans to ask for. It's like, oh, there's Artemis 2. Oh, there's Artemis 3 in, in the next couple of years. That, that's the one that where we land, right? And then there's like, we keep landing after that. It's like, oh yeah, they're asking $2 billion a year now for a, basically a, an upgraded equivalent of a lunar exploration module. And it's like, wow, we're, we're actually doing this. This is really happening. This isn't just flowcharts anymore. This isn't just you know, PowerPoint slides and talking about going to the moon in 20 years. We're talking about going to the moon in two years. And that's astonishing. That's just really exciting to see in the dollars in this budget. There are these programs like Artemis to get us beyond low Earth orbit, but there's also a budget line in this proposal to get something out of low Earth orbit, right? Tell me a bit about the funding for the ISS. Yeah, I, the ISS is always, uh, they built it with no ability to deorbit it, you know, uh, on command. Exactly. Because the thing is too big to burn up. You need to place it exactly, you know, somewhere over the Pacific where, where no humans are, or very, very, very few people are in order to, you know, you want to avoid a Skylab, a uh, Australia situation uh, like we had, NASA had 40 years ago. And so there's 180 million proposed in this budget for a functionally a space tug to start developing one. They anticipate the full cost will be on the order of a billion dollars, basically a big rocket you can latch onto the station to push it down uh, exactly where you want it on Earth. You need something powerful enough to do that. The current propulsion systems on Crew Dragon, Cargo Dragon, even the, the Boeing uh, Starliner can't do that for you. And so this is recognizing in a sense that, hey, you know, the story of ISS is starting to come to an end here. We're, we're starting to really, you know, this is kind of the, the narrative equivalent of starting the draft of the last chapter of the ISS. What's interesting about it, the scale of what they're spending, proposing to spend $180 million in this case for this next year, is pretty similar to what they propose to spend for the next chapter, the next story of commercial, what they call commercial low-Earth orbit, commercial LEO, commercial space stations, which was funded at around $228 million. Uh, and so they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're having these cross-pressure designs that we need to pay to build something to bring us down. And it roughly costs what we're spending to do our next chapter, which I think really says not really clear yet what this next book or story, to extend my metaphor, is going to be in low Earth orbit for, for humans and for space stations. And already I think you're starting to see pushback about, do we really want to orbit, deorbit the ISS? We spent $100 billion building it, took 30 years. Is there some way to save it? Um, we'll see. So this is, again, this is the proposal aspect. I'll be very interested to see what Congress ultimately funds in terms of money to start the end of the space station or not. Let's talk a bit about science. Um, Casey Dreyer, what were some of the things in this budget that that stood out to you as, as kind of the, the big winners for, for science? Science is also proposed to grow at about 6%. And this has been this really nice thing to see over the past, uh, I don't know, five to seven years at this point where the increases we see in NASA's top line are, are generally pretty evenly distributed between human exploration side and NASA's science side. And that's allowed both programs to grow and not compete with each other. And we've seen, you know, this abundance of new scientific ambitious missions in development as a consequence. The real highlight, right? I mean, if you want to call a winner in this budget, it's going to be Earth science, which 
kind of intuitively makes sense given the priorities of the Biden administration. They propose a, an almost 13% increase to really invest in this next generation of Earth orbiting scientific spacecraft. Planetary science, my bread and butter here at the Planetary Society that I love so, so dearly, does extremely well too. It gets a 6% increase, which puts that budget line, planetary science, at roughly historical highs. It, it's, it's, it's done extraordinarily well over the past few years. And that's really to accommodate this big, chunky, ambitious, again, program, Mars sample return, which they're asking for $950 million in this budget in one year. That's larger than the entire heliophysics division. You know, this could complete separate science division at NASA. So this is a, a huge, ambitious mission to return samples from Mars. Your listeners, I'm sure, are already familiar with it. But it's a, it's a, you don't want this mission to go over budget. You don't want it to miss this, you know, unrelenting, unforgiving Mars launch, uh, launch opportunities in the next few years, because the consequences for such a large mission missing these two year, every or whatever, 26 month launch windows has some serious budgetary consequences for other missions down the line. Part of one of those consequences we're already seeing is this uh, mission to Venus, Veritas, that is no longer an active mission to Venus. Functionally, it's been put on ice. Uh, it was one of the two, what they call discovery missions, selected a couple of years ago. Pairing with Da Vinci, which is an atmospheric probe to the surface of Venus, this would have been Magellan, for all of you deep cut super fans of planetary science. As, uh, uh, Magellan Plus, it would do this full, very detailed, a study of the topography and full surface geology of Venus using radar at much higher resolution than we've ever done before, which is pretty exciting now that we have claims of active volcanism on the surface. This would help validate that claim. That has been functionally ended as a project, and, and it's not fully canceled, but it's basically a survival-level money just for the science team and no actual engineering, no development, nothing, due to broader issues unrelated to the project. Um, and finally, Casey, let, let's talk a bit about next steps for this. We, you have been saying that this is the budget proposal. Um, how does this actually get put into action? And, and what does that path forward look like? Is it optimistic that all of this will get funded? So I'm a, I try to be an optimistic person. And that's a great way to start saying an unoptimistic uh, rest of the sentence here. I was going to say, for, for somebody who works on Capitol Hill, <laughs> you have to be optimistic, right? That's what I love about space. At the end of the day, uh, space is an optimistic business. Normally, normally, in the normal situation, the president's budget request kicks off the entire congressional process of determining the final, what they call appropriation of money from the U.S. Treasury to NASA for these various programs. It always differs somewhat, but for NASA, and particularly for some of these smaller, you know, small level things that, for a trillion dollar government like the U.S. Uh, government can be a couple hundred million, a lot of these smaller things tend to go through pretty smoothly. So even though it's a proposal, Congress generally only touches the big picture items on something like this. And in a normal process, again, we would see both the House and Senate work through uh, the, the proposal, give their versions of the legislation through their committees that are designed to write these out. They hold hearings about them. They would then pass them, you know, in the House, pass in the Senate, and then they'd vote on them together in some sort of a compromise bill. And again, ideally, let's say at this point, we'd have a, a brand new budget to welcome in the fiscal year, October 1st. That structure has not really happened in, in 20 years. They call it regular order. 
this year it's even more difficult because of the the newly divided uh, Republican-led House and the Democratic-led Senate. They are very far apart on even how much they want to spend. And it's not even clear they, even within their caucuses, agree within themselves how much they'd like to spend in order to even begin negotiating with each other to find some compromise. And things, I think, are pretty dismal in terms of a clear path forward for the entire budget process, uh, not just NASA. And I want to emphasize, it's not that people are picking on NASA. This is a, this is a much bigger political issue. I mean, obviously, there's issues with things like even the debt ceiling that they want, you know, some people want to use to cram down spending in other places of government in order to raise, uh, you know, servicing of the debt we've already accrued. That's not even related to this beyond the sense that it's that shows you how far apart they are already uh, on this type of thing. So it's it's a it's a tough headwind this year. The potential outcome, which I think is relatively likely, is something similar to what happened in 2011 after the Tea Party. Very similar situation. Tea Party took over the House of Representatives and, and the Democratic uh, uh, Party re- retained the Senate. They were also very far apart in this. And after at the end of the day, they did what's called a continuing resolution, which is basically, you know, copy paste last year's budget to this year. Keep it flat. Don't change anything. And because they can't agree on, on that. And, you know, in some ways, it wouldn't be the worst. NASA did pretty good last year. But at the same time, as we were discussing, inflation then takes a huge bite out of what NASA is able to do. NASA can't ramp up spending the way it needs to on certain projects like Gateway, like Human Landing System, like uh, or, or Mars Sample Return. And as a consequence, some of the downstream effects will be you will miss launch windows. You will have greater costs down the line. You just don't have the ability to surge and 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 cut where you need to in order to have a normal <laughs> operating process. So we'll see. We can revisit this. This is not going to happen for months. Casey Dreyer is the chief of space policy for the Planetary Society. He's got a great recap of this budget proposal on that organization's website, planetary.org. I'll also link it in this week's show notes. Uh, Casey, as always, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and navigating this, this complex topic for us. Hey, anytime. Happy to talk about it. As Dreyer mentioned, the future of the ISS is being discussed in this NASA budget, and as the space station nears its end in 2030, we'll take a look at its legacy and ideas for its future with retired NASA astronaut Eileen Collins, who was also the first woman to pilot the space shuttle and first to command a shuttle mission. That's next week on the show. Just ahead, a reading program here in Florida aimed at improving reading levels of kindergarten through fifth graders is leveraging the support of a space-focused TikToker. We'll talk about the story of reading in STEM. That's ahead when Are We There Yet? continues here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. The New World's Reading Initiative is Florida's free at-home literacy program for K-5 students aimed at improving reading scores by providing free books to students and families aimed at their interests. And one of those interests is STEM. In a push to reach the nearly half a million eligible students, the program is leveraging a well-known TikToker and social media influencer. Here to talk about the program is New World's Reading Assistant Director Dr. Shante Duggins and aerospace engineer social media influencer, and no stranger to this show, Joan Melendez-Meisner. Thank you both for joining us. 
Well, let's start with you, Dr. Duggins. Um, first of all, let's talk broadly about the New World's Reading Initiative. Um, what What is its purpose and and why did you launch this this mission in the first place? So the University of Florida Lassinger Center is the administrator for the initiative. Um, it was actually established by legislation in 2021. And the purpose is to provide books and resources to students across our state who are eligible. And and Joan, I'm going to bring you in on this conversation here. What is what is your role um, in this this organization? So my specific role is I got to sit down with a uh, a student. Uh, I got to sit down with Sirsha and talk about just my career as an aerospace engineer and how important reading was in my early early ages. Just because um, you know when I remember when I was a kid, you know the, the sky's the limit pun intended. Um, you know, whenever you're reading books, you dive into different worlds. And so being able to dive into worlds and have your imagination run wild allowed me to really be where I'm at today. So I'm able to ask the right questions. I'm able to immerse myself in these missions and really figure out what I want from what I'm trying to set to space. And so having that conversation with her was amazing. She's an incredible student and uh, we had a really good time. Dr. Duggins, the the kind of aim of of this initiative is is to help students who are not yet on uh their reading level um what does your organization do to kind of help build that um what kind of gaps are you filling there yeah so i'll I'll start by saying that um the challenge is not specific to the state of florida we know that nationwide According to the National Center for Education Statistics, even in 2019, only 34% of our fourth grade students were at or above proficient in reading. And just for some context, proficient represents what I would consider or what they would consider really solid academic performance. And so students who reach this level demonstrate competency. And so when you see that only 34% of our fourth graders nationwide are proficient like that that is a dilemma and so in the state of florida um the legislation have actually or our legislators have recognized the need to provide additional support not just for students and their families but also for educators so at the university of florida lastinger center uh, we approach this from you know as an ecosystem right and so you think about the various aspects that um, that children are kind of nested within. So providing free books to students, providing resources to their caregivers so they know how to support them when they're at home, and also providing professional development to the teachers, right? So they know how to provide resources in the classroom. So it's very much um, a multifaceted approach where we think about how can we impact this, you know, that child. And and Dr. Duggins this this program what really stuck out to me is that it it looks for it looks to tailor these books that are are distributed to students based upon their interests right i mean how important is it to find that um that passion within them to get them to want to read in the first place i'm thinking back to some of the books that i had to read when i was younger and i didn't particularly care for them you know how uh, why is that so important uh, for this particular program yeah uh, that's a really great question so we know that choice is huge um, and so when kids have an opportunity to weigh in on what they want to do, right, they'll be more inclined to do it. So it is an opt-in program. So families have to go to our website. Um, they submit an application and then we verify that. 
But as a part of that application process, they, so they can select topics that are of interest to them. And so we match those particular topics to book titles. And so what we hear from families is that, yeah, my child wanted to read about animals and they got this great book about a platypus, right? Or whatever it is. And so we're hearing from families that students who were previously reluctant readers, they actually want to read. Um, and it's it's allowing them to explore, like Joan said, it's allowing them to explore things that they may not have even known that they had an interest in, right? And so just giving them that choice is, is huge, but also providing them with high quality books so they can literally explore new worlds. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go ahead and self-title myself a reluctant reader as a kid. So that's a good terminology to explain yeah. it. It's a, it's a real thing, right? It's a real thing. Of course, of course. Joan, with, with, with that said, I mean, and, and you've kind of shared your reading experience, um, you know, through this program, uh, but but share it with us. You know, as a kid, were, were you reading books about science and engineering? Is, is that what inspired your passions to, to do the things that you do? I was also a reluctant reader as well. I just didn't know what I really wanted to read. And at the time when I was home, when I thought about reading, I thought of extra homework and I thought of it as more work than anything else. But it wasn't until I started discovering my self-interest of science, of space, of uh, medicine, of platypus and animals is when I started to really engage in the reading. And the really good thing about this program and why I partnered with it is the resource that the resources that they send out to the students and the families as well. So it's not just, you know, a reading uh, a book that you're reading every single month, but it's activities. It's the the behind the scenes, the resources that these students are now going to be able to share with their families. So it could be more of a family activity of getting these kids interested in, you know, adventure or science or space. So for me, um, it reminds me of the Magic School Bus, which I think I've mentioned in the episode because Miss Frizzle, what she does the best is, you know, she could talk about these subjects, but the best thing is to actually go into these worlds and engage. And so that's what books really could do to these students is open up these brand new words, worlds of imagination that they're going to create themselves. Um, and I think it's just a great resource for, for students to keep moving forward and then gain that interest and then translate it eventually to a profession. And if I, if I may add to that really quickly, and I forgot to mention this before, so something that we're trying to create is this notion of sharing the experience of a book together, right? So then it, it goes beyond um, taking a test or just reading because someone told you that you have to read, but just engaging in that that connection with a caregiver. So um, not only do, do students and families select topics that are of interest to them, they also select um, their language or, or format preference. And so all of our resources are available, not only in English, but also in Spanish and Haitian Creole, and then we've added Braille this this year statewide. And so, you know, we want families to to have access to those tools, to have access to those strategies and those tips so they can engage in very meaningful ways with their kids and really create that experience of sharing the book together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dr. Duggins, I mean, I guess, you know, we are in a different time. Joan, I'm, I'm going to assume that since we are both uh, kids of the Magic School Bus era, we are of the same age. Um, we didn't have a lot of kind of tools to connect people um, and, and nowadays you do have that connection. I mean, obviously this program is, is within the family unit and stuff like that, but I mean, Dr. Duggins, there's, there's lots of ways for these students to interact and, and have the shared reading experience now, right? Of course, of course. And, and we welcome all of that. Um, 
there's nothing more special than having a book. And we've heard this from families, right? Like kids say, well, is this is this my book? Like, can I keep it? And I'm like, yes, write your name in it. Like we want kids to read it and to reread it. And so, you know, having that tangible book in hand um, that they can add to their own home library. And in many cases, we're actually developing libraries for families who that didn't even exist before. And so what we're hearing from families is that this provides them with an opportunity where they may not have the financial resources to buy books for their student or for their child, rather. Um, and so we're providing them with those resources. And once a, a child is eligible and they're enrolled, they remain enrolled, even when their reading scores improve, which is what we want to happen. And so if they're in kindergarten, they stay in through fifth grade and they continue to book to get books every month. So I, I think it's really important what... Um what was mentioned is, so I, I come from a bilingual home myself. So, you know, whenever I'd go to school, it was all English. But then when I came home, um, my mother uh, is good at speaking English, but maybe not well at at, at uh, reading English because that's her second language. And so being able to have multiple books in both English and Spanish would allow me to obviously keep myself reading in a proficient level for school, but also involve my mom or my family or my brothers and sister who may not have that level to have that interaction with the family. So I think that's fantastic. Yeah, that's that's a really great point. Yeah, yeah. Um, Joan, I'm wondering, you know, you had the shared reading experience. Um, you know, are you sharing the importance of of reading and having a reading skill to get into a field of your own, like like STEM? I would assume that there is quite a bit of reading and you need to be very proficient at it. Um, you know, sharing that experience, is that a, a good motivator for for these young students to to want to get better at this? Absolutely. If they, for me, representation matters. So, you know, if I wanted to see myself as an astronaut and I, I talked to an astronaut and they said that they read a lot of books to train to go to space, then I would want to read a lot of books to train to go to space. And so, being able to talk to someone in the field that I thought that I'd see myself with is super important. And not only, you know, talk about how important reading is for the technical side, but just, you know, being able to have that open conversation uh, with kids, because with kids, you know, I can talk to them about physics and calculus and lose them in like 0.5 seconds. But having a real conversation and, and bringing it down to earth to a level where they can understand and that you know, showcasing that importance and having that connection with them, I think really engages that audience, which is what they're trying to do with this program is having that engagement. And so uh, for me, you know, as as an engineer in the space industry, obviously reading is something that you have to do, but, you know, having it make it more fun. I don't want to tell kids that we're stuck doing test plans, you know, 95% of the time, but, you know, we're we're using those test plans to test to go to Mars, to go to the moon, to go to explore our universe. And again, having that painting that world for them and opening that door for that imagination for them to just go in and imagine things themselves is extremely important in STEM. That was aerospace engineer and social media influencer Joan Melendez-Meisner and New World's Reading Assistant Director Dr. Shantae Duggins. Florida families interested in the program can visit newworldsreading.com. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org. Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>